0: I'm going to invite Matthew to uh, come and read to us from 1 Corinthians 16, uh, 1 to 18.
1: Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told Galanthian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send it with your gifts to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay for, you for a while or even spend the winter so that I can help, uh, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits, but I'll stay at Epipheus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now, about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go with you, uh, to go, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, and do everything in love. You know, the household of Stephanus were the first covets in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and everyone who joins in the work that labours at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaias arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they are refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. This is the word of the Lord.
0: So we've uh, reached the end of our 10-week series focusing on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, Paul established the church in Corinth. He was there for about a year and a half uh, before he moved on to proclaim the gospel in a city called Ephesus. But of course, uh, he was still very invested in the Corinthian church. He loved them, and he started to receive uh, reports That things were not going well uh, in the church in Corinth. You know, I've sometimes heard people say, wouldn't it be great if we could return to how it was in the first century church, Uh, as as if that would be a much purer form of Christianity? And, uh, well, as we've seen over the last 10 weeks, uh, it wouldn't be great to return to that because the first century church and uh, the church in Corinth in particular had all kinds of problems. It was a pretty messed up church. Uh, it was a divided church. Uh, different groups were elevating and following particular leaders uh, to the point where in, in people's minds, those leaders were becoming more important than Jesus himself. It was a sexually immoral church. Uh, Some people were uh, sleeping with temple prostitutes, which was a a common um, thing in in the city of Corinth. Uh, One man um, was sleeping with his mother-in-law, and it seemed like the church thought that was okay. Uh, It was a selfish and unloving church in many ways, uh, where people would do things without any regard for the impact they were having on other people, particularly when it came to eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. And when it came to the Lord's Supper, the wealthy members of the church were having a feast, and the poorer members of the church were going, out, going without. And finally, it was a confused church. Some people, it seems, didn't even believe in the reality of the resurrection. So I think it's best that we don't aspire to be like the first century church. Uh, the last uh, verse from last week's reading, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, says this. It says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Stand firm in unity, not division. Stand firm in moral integrity, uh, particularly in the case of the Corinthians, sexual integrity. Stand firm in your love for one another. Stand firm in the truth, especially the central truth of the gospel, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Stand firm. It's a message that we see repeated Uh, throughout this letter, and we see it uh, here again in chapter 16, where Paul says, stand firm in your giving, stand firm in the face of opposition, and stand firm in your love and commitment to one another. Firstly, stand firm in your giving. Paul uh, talks about a collection of for the Lord's people. And uh, the the people he has in mind, the Lord's people, uh, in this instance are the Christians in Jerusalem who were really struggling. Partly because uh, Judea was a far-flung and economically backward uh, region within the Roman Empire, and partly because they'd recently experienced a very severe famine Uh, So this was a case of the wealthier churches uh, stepping in to support a church that was in dire need. Isn't it amazing that barely 20 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we see an international mutually supportive church? Of course, uh, countries didn't exist in the way that we uh, know them today, but the church was spread uh, over a very large geographic area. Um, five Roman provinces are mentioned uh, in this part of Paul's letter in chapter 16 alone. Ironically, the Roman Empire, with its uh, roads and its infrastructure, uh, contributed to the rapid spread of Christianity. But there's something very Special, I think, about this picture. Churches in different regions, in different parts of the world, having an intimate knowledge of each other and uh, a vested interest in each other's welfare. Got me to thinking that maybe every church in the Western world should have an intimate link with the church in the developing world. The one could perhaps provide financial assistance, and the other, I'm sure, in most cases, uh, will be able to give a demonstration of what it really means to live by faith. You know, we are really blessed here at St Andrews to have such a strong uh, link with the church in Indonesia through Sandra and the Creating a Bright Future Foundation. It's an amazing opportunity, and we need to ask God... Uh, to help us to make the most of it. Uh, if I'm honest, I'd love to see more people sign up to Sandra's newsletter, because we're praying into this ministry. As a church, we're invested in this ministry. And, and there's some amazing stories uh, coming out of Indonesia and the work that's going on there. It'd be great for us to, to keep abreast of those, or at least to follow you know, one of those stories. So I'd encourage you to uh, sign up to that newsletter. Anyway, Uh, Paul is talking about a collection being made for uh, the Christians in Jerusalem. And in so doing, he touches on a number of principles of giving. And he begins by saying, On the first day of the week, each of you should set aside a sum of money. So on the first day of the week, not the last day, but the first day. In other words, uh, giving needs to be a priority. We're to give from what we have, not from what we have left over and it involves everyone. Paul says, each one of you. He doesn't say those of you with a really high disposable income. He says each one of you, that's everyone. But he acknowledges that some will be able to give more than others. He says, in keeping with your income. So everyone is to give, but not everyone is to give the same amount. And I would go fast to say not everyone uh, is to give the same percentage. You know, some churches today say 10 percent. everyone should give 10 percent in line uh, with the uh, Old Testament tithe. Now, if you're a multi-millionaire, you could give 10 percent of your income without it affecting your quality of life in the slightest. You can still live in a big house and drive an expensive car and go on multiple holidays per year and um, eat out whenever you like. On the other hand, if you live on minimum wage, to give 10% of your income could significantly cut in uh, to your budget for food and electricity and other essentials. So that 10% rule or, or guideline that we sometimes hear, it might be proportionate in terms of income, but it's disproportionate in terms of impact. I think the New Testament, rather than, you know, stipulate a specific amount or percentage tends more to give us the principles of giving. And those principles are that giving should be consistent, generous, sacrificial, and joyful. It's not something that we do under duress. And yes, everyone can afford to give. Some might only be able to manage a few dollars per week. Others, hundreds of dollars, or maybe there are some that could give thousands of dollars a week. I don't think in this church there's anyone that could give thousands of dollars a week. I'm talking more broadly. But, you know, if you're Cristiano Ronaldo earning 450,000 pounds a week or $850,000 or whatever it is, you know, 50 grand is nothing, is it really? Everyone can afford to give. It's just the amount that varies. And some people think like this. They think, well, when I'm earning X amount of money, I'll be super generous. Or when I've got X amount in the bank, or when we've got the kids through school, or whatever it is. But the truth is, if you're not generous in your poverty, you will not be generous in your wealth. Generosity has nothing to do with our bank balance, and it's got everything to do with our attitude of heart. Uh, I, I think of Jesus' parable of the poor widow, which encapsulates it perfectly. Uh, Generosity is an essential spiritual discipline, uh, but the extent of our generosity, how much we give, is, I believe, between us and God. And that's a very serious conversation that we have uh, with God. It's something to pray into. The final principle that Paul highlights is that once received, the gift must be scrupulously managed. Uh, in verses 3 to 4, he says, Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. In other words, Paul is saying, I will personally ensure that this money gets to where it is meant to go. And he's not talking about a trip to the bank with a paying-in book. He's offering to undertake a long and perilous journey by sea, and by land. It's a far cry from some uh, charities now that you give money to the charity and you know, a massive percentage of it gets absorbed in administration costs. This is not happening here. Paul wants to make sure that everything gets to where it's meant to go to those uh, desperate Christians in Jerusalem. So Paul is urging the Corinthians to stand firm in their giving, and I believe that he would urge us to do likewise. Next, Paul tells them to stand firm in the face of opposition. In verse 13, Paul says, Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. So why do the Corinthians require faith, strength, and courage? Well, Corinth, as we know, was uh, licentious, decadent, and morally corrupt in the extreme. Many areas of uh, everyday life we would consider to be X-rated. If you stand for Christ in that kind of environment, you will encounter opposition. No doubt about that. Uh, Opposition is something that Paul knew all about. In his second letter to the Corinthians, uh, Corinthians, he lists some of the uh, opposition and hardship that he had personally experienced in his efforts to proclaim the gospel. Allow me to read you an extract from that. He says, Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Five times he was whipped. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. And he goes on, but I think we get the idea. In Ephesus, from where Paul wrote this letter, his ministry was so effective that he was seen as a threat by the uh, the craftsmen, the artisans who were making uh, idols for the temple of Artemis. Um, the more people turned to Christ, the less demand there was for their idols. It was putting them out of business. And in the end, there was a riot. Two of Paul's companions were seized, and they very narrowly avoided Uh, being lynched, as I think I did when I showed that rugby slide earlier. (laughs) Uh, Paul faced extreme opposition throughout his career as an evangelist, and we know that uh, in the end uh, Paul was beheaded in Rome. When he says stand firm, these are not just empty words, this is exactly what Paul himself was having to do and did do. In Australia today, we're not going to be whipped or stoned or uh, carried off by an angry mob. But there's no doubt that mainstream Christian views uh, have become somewhat marginalised, and it's getting increasingly difficult to express them. Even just identifying oneself as a Christian can be awkward and embarrassing if we allow it to be. And some people simply won't want anything to do with us when they know uh, that we are Christians. And I know people in this church who have had that experience even from members of their own families. So although we're not persecuted per se, the Christian life still requires strength and courage. That's what I would call external opposition. But I think there's also... Uh, internal opposition what's going on uh, within our hearts and our minds and for many of us this will be more relevant before we get to the point of having to deal with an actual human being who takes exception to our faith or some aspect of it uh, we have to confront our own doubts and fears what will my work colleagues think if i start talking about jesus well, they think I'm some kind of religious nut? I've gone so long without mentioning that I'm a Christian. There's members of our family that don't know. Won't it seem a bit odd if I suddenly say something now? Or there's still a lot of sin in my life. If I talk about Jesus, won't that make me a hypocrite? If we don't stand firm against these doubts and fears and the root causes of them, And the root cause is sometimes sin, persistent, unrepentant sin has a debilitating effect on any Christian. Uh, If we don't show strength and courage at the internal level, we will remain closet Christians forever or worse still, fall away from the faith. And we'll never even come close to standing firm in the presence of another human being. I think for many of us, talking about, standing firm in the face of serious opposition is too big a leap. It's not our experience. Uh, For most of us, we're not at that point, most of us. Rather, I think for many of us, we need to focus on the basics. Getting into God's word, taking our prayer lives seriously, hanging out with other Christians who can strengthen us and encourage us in our faith, and asking the Lord to give us the strength and the courage to stand firm against our doubts and fears and against the sin in our lives. For most of us, the internal struggle is the opposition in the face of which we must stand firm. Finally, and I think most importantly, Paul urges the Corinthians to stand firm in their love and their commitment to one another. Paul demonstrates his love and commitment to the Corinthians by his intention to go and visit them. And he doesn't want it to be a flying visit like some kind of celebrity pastor who rushes in and rushes out. He wants to remain with them and invest in them. Uh, But he's going to stay in Ephesus for a little bit longer because the Lord has opened all kinds of doors to ministry to him there. In the meantime, he sends Timothy because he knows that Timothy will be of huge benefit to the church in Corinth. Timothy was an unlikely leader. Uh, He was very young. uh, He was timid. He may have lacked self-confidence, and we know that he was quite unwell. He was uh, 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 quite sickly. But despite all that, he was a wonderful man of God who was instrumental in building the early church. And Paul says, see to it That he has nothing to fear while he is with you. In other words, Paul wants the Corinthians to treat Timothy with love and respect. Uh, Paul also wanted to send Apollos, uh, but Apollos didn't feel that it was quite the right time. But clearly Paul wants to go on supporting the Corinthians in any way that he can, and part of that support is, you know, sending people to them who can encourage them and build them up. Uh, And this sharing of human resources, if I can put it that way, uh, was not all one way. Uh, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, they all went to visit Paul, and Paul says uh, that they refreshed his spirit. In fact, Paul highlights Stephanus and his household because they devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. They were servant-hearted, and they demonstrated their love in practical ways. Interestingly, Paul says, submit to such people. Submit to such people. Jesus gave us the supreme example of servant leadership. And in the New Testament, and this was very countercultural in the first century, but I think still to a certain extent today, this is countercultural. In the New Testament, humility and servanthood are seen as essential leadership characteristics. Humility and servanthood. Leaders must demonstrate love in practical ways. In verse 14, Paul spells it out. He says, Do everything, do everything in love. So it's imp- so important for us to stand firm in our love and commitment to one another. Getting to know each other outside of church, because there's only so much that you can get out of 20 minutes morning tea. To to, to really know someone, you've got to spend time with them. You've got to to be intentional. Uh, Perhaps checking in on people when we've not seen them for a period of time. Give them a call, drop them a text, how are you going, hope everything's all right. Letting them know that we, we still care about them, we're still thinking of them. Being attuned to the needs of others and offering help. And I, I wish people would, but often people don't ask for help. And the only way that we're going to know if someone needs assistance, if there's something in their life that, 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 that we can help with, we only know that if we know the person. And we know them quite intimately, and there's a level of trust, and we know what's going on, and, and we, can, we can offer support. Being present. Being present when we gather on a Sunday. That is part of our commitment to one another. Um, Do you know that your presence here this morning is a huge encouragement to those around you? Your presence here this morning is a huge encouragement to those around you, and we miss you when you're not here. So we must stand firm in our love and commitment to one another. We stand firm in the face of opposition, not just external opposition, you know, human beings, but actually the stuff that's going on in our own heart and minds. And we must stand firm in our giving. That's how Paul ends his first letter to the Corinthians. He makes these three final uh, points in the last chapter. And his exhortations are still equally relevant to us 2,000 years later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that there are so many... Sort of forces and factors that can work to pull us away from you, to uh, divert our attention, to challenge our priorities, to lead us astray. Father, it's, well, Paul says it's a a fight, the good fight. It is a fight to stay on track, to stand firm. But we pray that we will. Be resolved to standing firm in our faith, to standing firm as Christians uh, in every environment so that we are the same person at home and at work and in church and wherever we happen to be. Help us, Lord, to stand firm, to be the people and the church that you have called us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.